0: You're listening to On the Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Let's get into the show.
1: So welcome everybody to another edition of On the Whistle today. I welcome Jamie Monroe to the show. Jamie has had a fascinating and colorful history in the world of lacrosse, Uh, a great lacrosse player by his own right. Uh, college D1 coach, and also a founder of a massive organization called 3D Lacrosse, and now the uh, owner and sole proprietor of JM3 Sports, which is an online coaching platform focused on developing coaches, players, college recruiting, and all sorts of benefits. Incredible amount of content there. So, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Gary. Great to see you. Great to see you too. Full disclosure, Jamie and I went to the same high school and his brother and I graduated together and uh, the Monroe brothers were known as just solid athletes and all around good guys. And uh, I haven't spoken to Jamie or really seen him in about 30 years, and it's super nice to connect. It's funny, you look a little older, but you look like the same kid I knew 30 years ago. It's just I know. Strange, you know?
0: A little, so I, I, would, I would say right back at you.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I'm trying. (laughs) I'm trying. So, so Jamie, you know, on the show, we want to really examine the role of coaches and mentors and their ability to take young people's lives and shape them and care for them and transform them in a way that makes them meaningful people in the way that, you know, they're destined to be, to fulfill their purpose in life. And I have found in interviewing coaches and mentors and administrators like you that, your role in that journey is remarkably important and in order to understand that i've also found that to examine your journey specifically from athlete to transition to coach to maybe program owner or administrator can reveal a lot so i thought we'd kind of dig in a little bit about your youth you grew up in providence rhode island you attended moses brown school you played soccer and lacrosse as your two primary sports and i i found something interesting which i didn't know necessarily where you're growing up that you were across from a field you grew up across from a field and that mattered so tell me a little bit about how you accessed the field and why that silly field across from your house made a difference and what it meant to you
0: yeah so you know this is before there was a lot of structured sports and it was you know i would i would basically my mom would be like listen go go do something and if i was like i'm bored she'd be like okay good i've got some work for you so i was never bored i was always out doing something and i would i would take my soccer ball and go over to the fields at brown i'd i'd kind of cut right through moses brown and and hop fences and next thing you know i'm over at brown university or moses brown i guess and I just played pickup soccer and it really gave me a love of the sport. And at the time I didn't really think of it as anything other than something I liked to do. Now, when I get a chance to look back, I know that playing the pickup soccer games over at Brown university was incredibly impactful for me on so many levels. And when I talk about pickup, there was every single afternoon in the summer at five o'clock, there would be a group of guys playing soccer. And, uh, a, a, a real mix of people, you know, there might be a couple of college people. There'd be a lot of Portuguese guys. Cause there's a big Portuguese, uh, contingency in Providence. And I would just show up and I just became kind of one of the guys. I was like probably 12, 13, 14, all the way up through high school. And, um, it was awesome. And then it was every Saturday and Sunday during on weekends, during the academic year. And then every night in the summer, And we would just go play pickup and, it really transformed me into being the athlete I became because I really learned how to play the game in real time. I learned implicitly, I figured stuff out. And as I progressed as a coach in the spirit of coaching, I, I started to really teach and learn and try to explain everything. And now 30 years later, I've kind of come full circle on this whole implicit learning model that is incredibly powerful. That was, you know, pure joy and, and unbelievable development.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was reading much of what you wrote last night on your website, and you talk about learning to feel the game, Mm -hmm. and that this concept of free play teaches you to feel the game, not that it needs to be in the vacuum or absence of coaching. Coaching complements it, but what coaching can't teach is the feel. Can you dive into a little bit about what you've learned over the last 30 years examining that and why the feeling of the game is so valuable?
0: yeah you know it's again um in the spirit of learning and growing and coaching and teaching we have become a much more structured society for our kids I mean generally I was kind of roaming the east side of Providence you know on my bike playing sports doing whatever kids don't really do that anymore it was kind of like a hunter-gatherer uh, mentality in the summer especially you know you we invented a
1: lot of games we made up games totally and you played. i don't of- remember my kids making up games in the backyard or in the street the way we did as kids no
0: and it's not their fault you know because it's 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 the it's our society that's removed this hunter-gatherer um mentality from our kids and um And so, when I think about as I became a coach and I studied more and I learned more and I wanted to have outcomes and learn things, I began teaching. And over the course of time, you know, you're trying to win games and it requires structure in some ways to win games, but structure isn't the best place to learn. And that when you're learning implicitly, when you get a feel for how to, how to control your defender, you know, how can you control a defender? Uh, you can do it with your eyes. You can do it with your posture. You can do it with, you know, any kind of a fake. You can, you, you can pretend like you're doing nothing, right? These, these are things that you can't really teach. They're concepts that you can explain, you can present, but in the end, kids have to, athletes will figure this stuff out. And what I've kind of come to learn is the more that we've tried to teach people techniques or skills, the more that we're actually, actually trying, we're actually teaching them how to try to fit a, a round peg in a square hole or a square peg in a round hole, because by teaching them to do something and making it a fundamental, you've taken their own ability to figure it out for themselves away from them, which eliminates their feel. Mm. So where does coaching come in? I think coaching is valuable and I am a coach. But I think that the best thing as it relates to coaching is is after the fact with video, there's great stuff to be learned. And that's what I do with my business now is I work with athletes and we watch the video of what they did. And oftentimes it's just a pickup game. Could be a regular game, could be a practice, could be anything. But what happened? What actually happened? So they can actually learn what actually happened. Because a lot of times you don't even know what happened. You think, you know, but until you watch it, any coach will tell you, they don't really know what happened in the game until they watch the film later. And in the real time, just play, play implicitly, and then come back and watch it later. That is from a development perspective where I think coaching can fit in. And now with winning games, okay, you need some structure and you're going to have to get people on the same page so that you can do things as a team. There's a little bit of a difference between winning games and developing players. And so what's happened is everything's become about winning the game and everything's become about developing that structure getting on the best team. And you got these power teams at the youth level. And it's like, well, we haven't lost a game. We're, we're 69 and zero over the last, you know, three years. And, you know, on the stand lot, you would switch the teams up. They're always even, you know, I get first pick, you get next two, and, and you go back and forth. And if it's that big of a blowout, everybody just leaves. Right. So you That's actually. That's so
1: interesting and funny that you talk about that. Because that's how the governance structure worked in kids and playgrounds
0: right
1: yeah you have to readjust in order to make it more competitive
0: make it fair and make it fun
1: but jamie everybody wants their kid to be on this winning team so that they have a higher likelihood of getting into a better either high school program or college program so they can either offset the expense of college with a scholarship a performance scholarship mm-hmm. or get access to a playing experience that isn't for everybody. So there's so much performance pressure around the world of youth sports. So what do you tell coaches and parents who are trying to either bridge that gap or disassociate from that? Like, how do you balance that?
0: Well, the thing is, is that everybody believes that the, the, the best model would be having the best coaching and training combined with the best competition. And then you'll have the best uh, result. And actually, I don't think that's true. I think you're better off having the implicit learning of free play. That's where you will learn. When you are being coached and trained, you are being told what to do and what not to do endlessly. And that removes your ability to have the feel. It's teaching you to put a square peg in a round hole, literally. If I'm teaching you a technique and I'm like, this is the technique I want you to learn and do. I'm I'm eliminating that from, from your own ability to figure it out and secondly the best competition piece is a little interesting too because people are always like well you know big fish small pond you know you got to get the best competition i want my kid playing up you know but really and this is very interesting but you are better off playing with your own level or even a level that's below you because it will allow you to try things and to learn how to essentially toy with people and to learn how to dominate and to learn how to feel all of these things. So let me give you an example. Uh, if you know, I, I, I grew up playing soccer, but then when I started coaching, I played a lot of basketball and I became a pretty good basketball player, not a skilled basketball player, but a good pickup bass. I played every day for like 15 years. I got pretty good. But if I played basketball with my buddies, I could be like Larry Bird. If I played basketball with a bunch of players that, got, that were like really good high school or college players or coaches when I was coaching, I, my role would be rebound, play defense, pass, try to get a fast break bucket. Whereas when I was playing with my friends, a lower level that I might've been better, I'm, I'm shooting the ball, I'm working on moves, I'm learning things in real time. And so this is absolutely true. And it is so funny because a lot of the athletes I work with over quarantine, they had no choice but to just kind of play against their little sisters and moms and dads and brothers. Yeah. And it was incredible what they actually were able to translate from that. So when we think back to our, our day, it did not even matter who my coaches were. And it didn't matter who my competition was. I was going to be good no matter what. I played all the time. I played so much that there was nobody that was going to like spoil it for me. There was no, you know, be, you'll know, hear like coaches say like, well, this, I mean, apparently like this coach ruined it, you know, ruined the game and they quit the game. The problem with that isn't so much that a bad person couldn't make you kind of hate being there. The deal is, is that everybody equates the game with the coach. The game to me was the game. I just played the game and I played a million games. I loved all the games. It didn't really matter who my coaches were. It really, truly didn't. If I had better coaches, could that have been better? I think so. But it, it wasn't holding me back. And now it's kind of like if you don't have the right coach, you feel very limited in in your development. But that's because you're just you're putting all of your eggs in the basket of this coach teaching you everything rather than putting your eggs in the basket of the game teaching you, which is by far a better model.
1: Jimmy, you're, you're yeah. confounding everything that I've learned and talked about. I know so I so I got to break this down because I know it's a paradox that once we unwind we'll get to a better truth on this thing yeah it sounds to me like the old psychiatrist joke how many psychiatrists does it take to change the light bulb the answer is one it's going to take a really long time the light bulb needs to want to change (laughs) meaning the discovery is for the athlete put them in the environment where they have the freedom to try and learn on their own and over time they progress and if they've got the innate skills they'll develop them but i know for a fact because i've had people on the show like willie edwards the moses brown high school football coach who said to me my high school coach gave me a life raft i came from a broken home and if it wasn't for that game and for that coach i wouldn't be the person i am today jamie rice D3 hockey coach for Babson hockey talks about the meaningful impact of his relationship with those players. Right. And so there's something else going on between coaching and kids. Sure. So help me understand where those two things overlap.
0: Yeah. Again, I think it kind of comes down to, there's so many amazing things in sports and really what we're talking about is development of players learning how to play the game. There's really a three-step process that players go through when they're competing and playing. The first is seeing what's happening around them and processing it. The second is making a decision to do something. And the third is executing the decision with a technique or a skill. Okay? What almost everybody spends all their time doing is practicing the execution of the skill. That's what they rep hashtag reps, nonstop, let's rep, let's get more reps, more shots, more reps. But that's not the hard part. The hard part is the ability to process it and then make decisions. And the decisions, there's confidence tied to decisions too. So you might know that you could do this, but you're just not comfortable in doing it. When you have a practice in which you, you rep out all these amazing skills and concepts in, in, in structure, it can look great. But in the end, it doesn't actually, you're giving you're you're not creating problems for the athletes. You're you're giving them the solutions. What you really want to do is let them find the solutions and you create the problems. So the topic here is what's the best model for learning the feel of the game? When you start talking about these coaches and the and the impact they have, I have great memories of my coaches from that perspective. I'm not talking that they were that they were meaningless for me as a person and as growing up as, as a leader or a, a learning lessons and, and and modeling and all of that. It's incredibly important. I'm just separating that out from pure development to the fact that once you join a team, now you're a part of a team and you're going to learn hopefully from that coach all of these incredible life skills. That sports and teamwork and discipline and sacrifice and leadership and unselfishness and all of that that comes along with it, those lessons will last you a lifetime and they will impact you and you know in your family life as a as a parent or as a leader or as an entrepreneur, whatever it is you do, it's it's incredibly valuable. And that's that's the structured part of sports. That's the best part of the structures. That's what you kind of learn. But the best part of the unstructured is it's where you actually learn
1: how to play. Yeah, it's a really, really valuable distinction and one that I hadn't yet explored and I I find it so illuminating the way you're describing the athletes' discovery of their own skill sets and the exploration of their own talents and learning that processing and timing and decision-making and executing the skill. Mm It's a really interesting uh, explanation. And then around that, if you circle it with camaraderie, discipline, respect, humility, taking those two things together, that creates the environment of the really, the whole athlete. And that's a really impressive way that you've described it. Jamie, let's continue on your journey. Okay. I'm fascinated by the story you wrote in the recruiting process at Brown. So you had a coach at Brown, You ended up going over to some of the summer camps or a game an alumni game i think it was and you were kind of like a you were in high school and the next thing you know you're playing against some real competitive college kids and you perform well and the coach gets an eye for you and then you you get other coaches getting eyes for you and the coach writes you a bunch of letters Mm -hmm. handwritten letters yeah which i thought was a really nice touch and one that i think still works today and I tell my kids all the time and my wife, I'll tell you, my wife drilled it into my three children when they got a gift, when they met somebody, whatever you go right to your desk and you write a handwritten note. And it's a valuable lesson, but how do those notes make you feel as an
0: athlete when you got them? Dom Stargia was the head coach at Brown at the time. And he was like famous for his love letters that he would always write. <laughs> People always talked about it, but yeah, you know, um, it's old school, man. You know, you it, it, it might take you uh, 15 minutes to read it. Cause you know, it's, it's like written in cursive and you're trying, you know, I'm sure he's banging out a lot of letters, but, but um, yeah, um, it was always like, Hey, this is really cool. And we would always joke, you know, love Dom, you know, but he, he did that for all his recruits. And it, and, and it is um, it was very powerful. Dom stars made me want to go to Brown, uh, you know, unlike these days, I didn't have any idea that I was going to ever go to Brown, nor did I have any idea I was going to play sports in college. I, I was just playing. I, and it was just all of a sudden junior year. And, and all of a sudden, I got, started getting letters. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, um, it was powerful. And um, it, it meant a lot to me and, all the, and really all the kids. And that's why he was such a great recruiter, because he made the personal touch. And he would write you personal letters and notes, even if it was just short. It didn't really matter. But it was really cool.
1: Yeah, that is a neat story. And so how was your experience transitioning from high school to college and and being coached at a different level? How was that transition for you?
0: It was great. Uh, I I loved Brown. Uh, You know, I kind of followed a bunch of Moses Brown guys. So Bernie Bonanno was a year older uh, than me and uh, Tom Gagnon was three years older. And so those guys were both on the team when I got there as a freshman. And um, of course my brother joined uh, three years later after his, uh, what he calls his pretty good year. Um, <laughs> his PG year at Choate, which he calls his pretty good year. That's wonderful. Uh, But um, I didn't really know, I, I, I was a good lacrosse player, but I had played a lot more soccer than lacrosse, actually. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really know the game that well. I mean, I was just a good athlete that had worked on it and, and really was, it took me a while to, I mean, I played pretty much freshman year. I played a fair amount, but but it just really, I, I really didn't become a good lacrosse player until I was like probably 27. <laughs> and, you know, because I just didn't play that much, to be honest with you, but lacrosse was March, April, May. We didn't play. There was no, like, there was no, you know, Nick Reeder would go out and shoot on the, uh, on the backboard, you know, but I just was, I didn't really enjoy shooting it against a backboard all. You know, I would go over as soon as they put the goals away, I would go play soccer and I just played little games all the time. And there was not a lot of little lacrosse games to be played back then. So it took me a while uh to really become the player that I could, that I could have been in this day and age kids play so much more. They know the game much better. The, the skill, My skill level by the time I was 27 or 28 was probably where these kids are now that are like, you know, 12 as far as like literally knowing how to do stuff. It was just different. Um, mm Jamie, you go from Brown
1: to Australia of all places. And it sounds like you enter some really lean years. Sounds like you were making chicken scratch money. You had... Little responsibility in terms of authority or decision making within organizations. You were a low man on, on the total pool. You had an injury while you were playing professional lacrosse, which forced you to take a job on an hourly wage. You pick up your first assistant coaching job in uh, Colorado College. And I think from there you start getting bitten by the idea of coaching. But it sounds like a couple things happen. One, you start to accumulate a massive understanding of the game of lacrosse. And it's a recurring theme that I'm seeing with people that I talk to that the ones that stick it out the longest also know the game the best. Mm-hmm. And they've really, really developed a massive learning and vocabulary around the game to become great, great uh, artists of the game, if you will. The other thing is, it sounds like, and I can't tell, were you broke and happy? or were you broken melancholy? <laughs> oh. if, you're, if you read there, you're making no money. You know, it didn't snow the year you wanted it to snow. We, you were living away from home. I,
0: were, you, were you enjoying yourself or were you bummed out? I can't tell. No, I I, I was, uh, you know, I just didn't really, you know, as a, as a young person, I just didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. So what, what I, I remember, senior year in the spring, Dom was like, Hey, Jamie, why are you not at the, uh, with all the other seniors going to like the job fair or whatever? I was like, I don't know. I wanted to be at practice. I didn't want to go do that. He's like, okay. Meanwhile, everybody's like working on their career. And I, I just, I wasn't interested in that at the time. I was interested in being at practice and trying to win a game. And I also knew I was going to go to Australia. So when I went to Australia, it it was like an incredible time of, a you know, it was a lifetime experience. I went over to Perth, lived in Fremantle, played lacrosse, worked at Arnott's Biscuits uh, and um, and was, you know, just really enjoying life with with buddies. And then I traveled and I didn't have much money, but I didn't care because I didn't really need much money. And it was just kind of a life experience. I traveled by myself for around eight weeks through, you know, I hitchhiked all the way from Sydney to Cairns, which is like going from like, uh, it's like going from Miami to New York. Um, if you told
1: your if your kid told your wife that they were hitchhiking across the country my wife i would be terrified right totally no doubt and by the way you had no cell phone you weren't checking in you probably wrote postcards home nothing nothing just disappeared off earth for eight weeks
0: well like bananas gone, like gone for six months but i mean that was like for that yeah i mean i was like literally like you're on the you know being hitchhiking and just waiting to see who's going to pick you up is pretty interesting
1: yeah and scary you're hoping, hoping
0: yeah it's scary but it ended up you know working out and, and i did um get uh an opportunity to coach at colorado college and i i loved coaching and i loved it and um i why? wanted to coach why and did I, you love it I don't know. I just um, I just love the game, and I just love talking about it. Being out there, uh, I loved. I love. Always loved being on teams. Everything about it, I loved. There wasn't. I mean, it's like kind of hard to even put your finger on exactly what it was. It was like everything. There was nothing I didn't love. And I really want. It's wanted, easy to go to work when you love something, isn't it? It is. It really is. And it, it's still that way. I mean, I love what I do now, and it's it's all kind of about lacrosse, and it's and in relationships, and that's really what it is, right? I love the sport honestly, I could have been happy with any sport. If I was like football, I would have loved football. If I was like, whatever, every, it doesn't really matter, but it's the relationships piece is a, a, so fun. And and then just the, the competition and, and just learning. But I, I did end up finally um, getting the uh, the job at Yale when out of the blue at a weird time of year. And um, you know, that changed, that, that changed everything when I finally- It's a big
1: deal. It was. I mean, that was a big breakthrough. And something. it sounds like something tragic, something terrible happened at Yale. And I'm curious, one of your teammates who was on the team, you weren't a player, you were now a coach, was tragically murdered. Yeah. Sounds like he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so what effect did that have on the team, Jamie? And what role did coaches have in helping the healing if there was healing?
0: It was, you know, I I vividly remember that, that day, Christian Prince was a sophomore. It was a Saturday morning practice and Christian didn't show up that morning. And people were wondering thing is it was uh, February 17th, 1991. I remember the date and I was, um, I would only been there. I like, we'd only started practice on February 1st. So I'd only really, and I was coaching the offense and he was a defenseman. I, I really didn't know Christian very well. I was just getting to know everybody. And um, the crazy thing was, is that I'd gone through this two times as a player at Brown. Vinny Marinelli, my sophomore year, tragically died of a congenital heart disorder in the middle of the night, when right in the middle of our season, like on a Monday night, 1987. And then 1988, another freshman, uh, Jimmy Tepper, over Christmas break, was hit by a car in New York City, you know, at an internship or something like that, crossing the road. So I, it was just... Um, you know, I only tell you that just cause I'd kind of been through it and I was probably looking at it even differently. And I was, I think I was just numb, but I was also like, I didn't know anybody yet that well. And I just, but I could see, you know, that Mike Waldvogel, the, the, my, my boss and mentor and head coach at the time, you know, I just look over and he's like sitting down against the wall with his hands elbows on his knees and hands in his head. And I was like, geez, what's going on? The whole team was like, Jamie, go figure, you know, what's going on? So, um, yeah, it it was absolutely insane. It was like a blur. As much as I vividly remember that day, the the rest of it was all kind of a blur. And I, you know, I haven't really talked about it too much with those guys in a long time. But, um, you know, I'm not sure if we did things well or not, you know. um, Not a lot of training for them. No you know all you yeah. can do is try to is try to just be there for people really yeah it's important to be a good teammate so
1: jamie talk about your transition and the next step you go from yale to becoming the head coach at denver yeah and it sounds i think you wrote you can't be ready for this even if you think you're ready yeah it reminds you of what mike tyson says everybody's got a plan to get punched in the face yeah did it feel that way for you were you overwhelmed i mean it, it, it sounded like you had a bad not bad culture but it was a stepchild program in a campus yeah you describe having a cubicle that you share one cubicle that two guys are sharing in a dark hallway sounded mildewy and cement walled it just sounded awful and so you inherit the stepchild of a program and and you had to build it up yeah So how'd you get after it?
0: You know, I was just, I wanted to be a head coach so badly. I was ready, I'd been at Yale for eight years. Um, I was 31 years old and um, the University of Denver job opened up and uh, thankfully I got hired. I think there were a couple top choices, uh, said no thanks and that left me, that's how it works, right? I couldn't have cared less that there was nothing there. I was, all I wanted to do was build a program. So, yeah, we were a tier b sport we didn't have a locker room we didn't have offices. The tier B sports were literally uh there was a new athletic facility under construction at the time, but it was still a year a year and a half off and we were We were in um an abandoned dining hall beneath a dorm, and that 's where all the tier b sports were and I shared a cubicle with my assistant coach, Peter Hillgartner. And we just got on the phones and started recruiting people to the University of Denver and just started working at it, man. But it was incredible. It was exciting. You know, I think looking back on that, like I just was able to be tunnel visioned on, on building this thing with zero regard for the fact that we were nothing. I, I, I was just like, this is what we're doing. Like, come join us. And we just got after it. And of course, I really didn't know what I was doing because it's like being a new parent you just don't really know what you're doing with your first, your first child. And, you know, you, you're crazy. You're working, you know, you're, you're putting massive amounts of hours in and you're, you're way more edgy and nervous and every, it was crazy. It was, it was nuts, but it was an unbelievable experience. And and the, the biggest thing about Denver that was awesome was they really kind of had, it. they they believed in entrepreneurship and they were, they rewarded it and they, they truly let us let our program do everything from fundraise. Like a lot of programs, you can't even fundraise because they, they'll be like, no, nope, no, nope, we, we don't want you talking to anybody. They're like, listen, we don't have much money for you, but if you can go raise it, go for it. And I was like, perfect. And so, you know, you just chip away at that. And then it just became this, like, you know, my model was my, my mantra was let's just get let's just count all our little wins and let's try to get little wins every day. And those little wins will add up over the course of time. And it was, and it did, it was exciting.
1: Yeah. So you built a great program. You raised enough money to install a new facility. Yeah. And you started winning games. What was the the peak or the climax of kind of the um, winning accomplishment? How far did you guys go in your division?
0: Yeah uh so we were we went to two ncaa tournaments had two top 12 finishes one time we won our conference in 06 that got us in and then in 08 we didn't win our conference but we we had a good enough resume to make the ncaa tournament as an at large um which was that was really meaningful because that's hard to do and um you know, there's, there's more parody now than, than ever. I mean, the parody was kind of beginning in division one lacrosse right when I was sort of in my first number of years there. And it, it's just continued to be, be more so every, every game, every season since then. But, you know, we won, I don't know, I think three or four shared shared in three or four league championships, went to two NSA tournaments was real close on another and uh, really built the program from, from nothing into something really special. Like you said, we raised $10 million over 11 years, built an amazing stadium, recruited really high level players. And um, it was was something we're really proud of.
1: Jamie, it's an incredible accomplishment and one that obviously you should be super proud of, but it sounds like something went wrong at the end. And I'd love to know what the learning is of that something that went wrong because you don't coach there anymore. You didn't retire from there necessarily at the end of your career. And you moved into other great things and have had since great accomplishments. So it's not like the end of Jamie Monroe and that was the last chapter in the great book of Jamie Monroe's journey. But something definitely didn't happen right at the end. I'd I'd love to dig into that and understand uh, what was the environment for causing that and what can other coaches learn from that experience?
0: Yeah. Well, it was, it was kind of crazy because I went from being like the star of the department on every single level, just a model of how you'd build a program and do everything to all of a sudden being in a weak position. And it was a combination of a lot of things. And it was, you know, the, the culture of our program was suffering. The, um, we had guys like, you know, getting in trouble like every single you get, if you're a, if you're a college coach and you see like a, a phone call coming in on Sunday morning from a player, you do not you're not looking forward to that call because <laughs> it pretty mean, pretty much means somebody got in trouble. Yeah. Now, which just happened? I mean, like, listen, this has happened. This, this is not going to. This was not something that never happened. You know, to everybody, it happens to everyone. But there was just sort of a combination of of board. You know, there was like a board member whose, whose grandson was on the team. And all of a sudden there was politics and stuff. And we had a new athletic director, you know, who wanted, who, who, who has replaced, you know, 23 out of 24 coaches that, that were there anyways. Um, and um, all of a sudden I had another year on my contract, but I just had no desire to be a lame duck coach. And so I was just like, fine, if not, then I'm out. And I, I just moved on, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I took a month. I, it was, it was really kind of tough pill to swallow at the time because, like, I put so much time and effort and done really well. Yeah, and really and well. So many like good players. I mean, like, the culture needed to get cleaned up, and I was in the process of doing that, but it created it just, you know, by, by saying, okay, listen, like we're, we're changing this culture and you're not going to be a part of us moving forward. When you do that, you know, it's, it's kind of like diving on a grenade because things get ugly and all of a sudden you get all kinds of politics going on. And then the next thing, you know, you know, Denver went on an epic run of final fours and granted they they did get the, the John Wooden of coaches, meaning Bill Tierney, you know, but, but there was talent there. Okay. So like the, the, this, the, I had the, the kids that, that were committed that were, you know, on the team that were, that were I had two classes of commits and um, you know, we, th- those guys had a, had a great run and I unfortunately didn't get a chance to um, to realize that myself. And, you know, now it's like 10 years, 11 years later and you know, it's, it's way in the rear view mirror. Do I still have regrets? I don't know. Not really. There's some regrets I might have had about I've always been kind of a stickler uh, about like, hey, you're going to do this. I remember we had this one athlete, a couple athletes that we were trying to give them a little bit of latitude. And that latitude really ended up kind of hurting us, you know, because all of a sudden when we went to say, hey, look, this isn't okay anymore. It was almost like, you know, that. And
1: what was the behavior that you were trying to give latitude to that you had to rein in? Is it a behavior, was it a behavior thing or was yeah, it, it like? Behavior
0: thing. It was like this combination of like wildly talented player, all American as a freshman that was just not willing to live by the standards that we wanted. And we, li- we did live with it when he was a freshman. And when we went to go try to change things as a sophomore, it didn't work very well because he wasn't wasn't ready for that. And so, and it just, the culture was just, it was not great. It was kind of sad but you know listen I had great staff at the time we were all working together on this Matt Brown is the uh, offensive coordinator at Denver now viewed as one of the great minds in the game he played for me he was our offensive coordinator on that team John Torpy was the uh, defensive coordinator and 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 uh, associate head coach on that team and He's the head coach at High Point and he's done incredible things there. I mean, we were on the same page with everything that we were moving forward on, but there were some out external pressures. And I think that's one of the things that you never really, you know, you, 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 as a coach, it's like you can, you can do everything right and it can still not work out. Or you can try to do everything right, I should say. Obviously, you're never going to do everything right, but you can like actually try to do things right. And things sometimes aren't going to work out. And even even have an amazing staff of people around you. So, you know, now when I look back on it, it was like the next thing I did was I founded 3D Lacrosse. And talk about that. Yeah. So,
1: what was the what was the impetus to do that and what was your hope and desire of what that was going to be? It sounded like it was just going to be like start off just like a clinic <laughs> or a little event. Turned into the largest recreational travel high skilled yeah. lacrosse league in the country. So, did an idea turn into such a a mammoth thing?
0: (laughs) Well, so I took a month, I took a month in the the month of May of 2009. And I was like, what am I going to do? Maybe I'll get out of lacrosse. And I started like looking around and figuring out what I might do at the time I was 42 years old. I had amazing experiences and stuff, but I, but I really wasn't going to be starting, you know, anywhere um, up on a totem pole. I was gonna be starting at the very bottom, wherever I was going. And I'd also done incredible amount of entrepreneurial type of work. I'm an entrepreneur at heart, anyways, and I was just like, you know what, I'm starting a lacrosse company. I already had one event, and I was like, I'll create a couple more events, and um, you know, we'll just this is what I'll do. And um, we did, you know, again, I just I attacked it the same way that I attack anything, and um, you know, like you said, within you know a few years, we we had 80 employees, and we were you know the largest. Training and events, lacrosse company in the world. And um, it was an unbelievable experience to try to take all of my knowledge and passion from what I learned from coaching at Denver and Yale and try to apply it to a club and try to, you know, really do a great job for families and kids and really teach and coach and truly put what was in the best interest of the customers first. And did you stick
1: to your? positioning around free play versus square pegs and round holes, was that part of the
0: culture? It wasn't actually, and that's the really interesting thing. So, you know, when I sort of referenced a couple of times earlier, this evolution of a coach and the spirit of learning and learning and learning, it, it becomes teaching. And what we what we did at 3D that was pretty cool was we created amazing progressions, smart progressions and taught everybody, every variation of every skill. And this is like we're pioneering this whole model and it worked really well in the sense that you, you could teach every variation of every skill and every concept and practices looked awesome. It was great. It's really been, it was after I sold my shares and stepped back from everything and specifically was, I, I have a son and a daughter that, that graduated from high school in 2017, the same time that I was selling 3D, and I had a, an eighth grader at the time, and my older two were both going on to play division one lacrosse. My son at Georgetown, my daughter at the time at Oregon, and I, I, I basically was going into this whole virtual world of, you know, I have a non-compete, so I couldn't do any of the stuff that I used to do, and I was like, all right, I'm going to do everything on digital and video, and meanwhile, I got to somehow help my daughter achieve her goals. And we just went, started going to the free play model, which was really back to the free play model that I grew up with. And little by little, I've just dialed it up massively now to the extent that I've kind of gotten to the point where I don't really want to teach people anything in real time. I'll show them on video later what happened. And try to get them to figure out what happened and then show them what, what other players might do in a similar situation. but I've really come to the point now where the free play is I, I see it. And one of the reasons why I went in this direction also was I was never satisfied with the translation of all the amazing things we were teaching to actual gameplay. Mm-hmm. It was probably better than most. It wasn't like we did a bad job. But I was like, why is it these kids can do hundreds of skills, but they don't actually use hundreds of skills? Why is it that they don't use them? They could do hundreds of things, but they only do like 10 or 20, whatever. Those are sort of arbitrary sort of figures. But the point is, I just wasn't happy at all with the percentage of the transfer from what we were teaching to what the kids were actually doing. And now... I'm blown away by the transfer. I've never seen athletes that use more skills. And it's like, I'll tell you this, if you use it in a Sandlot game, you will use it in the real thing.
1: Jamie, 3D lacrosse will have a, always have a special place in my heart. My middle child was a goalie for 3D New England. And um, had great coaching. It was a great experience. We go up to Vermont to play some big tournament at the end of the summer. And they won the whole tournament for their, uh, it was the U-17 or whatever the oldest one is. It was a great experience. And on the ride back from Vermont to Providence, I said to him, I said, hey, Jude, um, you know, this is the last tournament you and I are ever going to go to because you're going to college next. And uh, he's like, yeah, "Uh uh-huh. And I'm like, you know, it's been awesome watching you play i get choked up thinking about it now yeah. and he just went right back to his phone you know, As <laughs> he was like okay dad you know i i that experience being a father or a parent or a mother whatever it is for you as a parent and having that you know watching your child grow and play and achieve and for me to have that pinnacle of him winning that tournament that program 3d for that summer it was just an absolute joy.
0: I right. that story. And you know that was what was so exciting about 3D. I mean even though you know I've evolved as a coach since you know building that curriculum. The funny thing is the end result of everything is exactly the same. It's just more of how you get there. But we did set the bar in a really cool way for 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 lacrosse club lacrosse in the yeah. we got it was awesome. It was a real business and it was it was it was cool.
1: So tell me about You know, JM3, and it sounds like you're at a new level of understanding, a highest level of knowledge as it relates to really understanding how to create an impact for kids and coaches. The thing that I found interesting on your website is there's lots of modules focused on coaches. There's modules focused on players and parents and college development and recruiting, but there's a lot in there about coaches. Mm -hmm. And one thing, you know, that this show focuses on is the value of the coach And the belief in that coach having an incredible impact on kids and so I guess you know I have a bunch of wrap-up questions but the first is Jamie have you unlocked something I mean are you on to something that is different about coaching it smells to me like there's discovery in this free play model and that don't worry about I can't tell you how many hours I sat on, on the sideline whether it's rain or sun with dog on the leash or whatever and I was watching some older person doing some steps right and then a a move and then a bunch of kids following him trying to do what he or she was doing and i must i mean my kids got exposed to hundreds or thousands of hours of the follow my hands follow my feet follow my shoulders Mm -hmm. and then repeat and it sounds to me like you're like stop that Give them a little bit of it, let them play some games, and then get them into a room and show them what they're doing so that they can see it from your perspective. Is this the big unlock?
0: Yeah, it is. It truly is. And it's been a process. So when I when I you know made this move to start JM3 Sports, I didn't really know what digital businesses were like. I mean, I was no digital expert, but I was an expert on a lot of things in the game. And I knew that I like to create content. I knew that I could create content for coaches. And so what I really just kicked it off with was coaching content to try to teach them how to teach everything you can imagine, webinars to teach everything under the sun, offense, defense, special teams. I would bring people in for for building culture. I'd I'd get division one coaches to come in and do stuff. And I did a lot of it myself. And that was where it all kind of began. But in the, you know, three years, in the interim, three and a half years, I've just learned more and more and more the value of no structure. I got a funny story for you. There's a girl who started playing on, a, I coach high school girls now with my daughter's team. And there's a girl who came out, she's a freak of an athlete. As good of an athlete as you're gonna see, so fast, so strong, basketball, soccer player, quit soccer to play lacrosse, senior, She's a she was a junior. And so, of course our season got cut very short, so that was kind of too bad. And, and since then, she just shows up over at my house and plays pickup. We play street lacrosse all the time, play a couple times a week. And um, I said to her the other day, I was like, hey, have I, what have I ever taught you? And she was like, have I, have I ever taught you anything? And she said, well, she kind of wanted to say yes because she thought that you know I'd feel bad. But I was like, don't worry. I haven't taught you anything, actually. I've never taught you one thing. And we, we played lacrosse together. She'd been at my house, let's just say, 30 times this summer, 30 days. And she was like, well, why haven't you taught me anything? Because I want the game to teach you. She's so, she's such a good athlete. If you start trying to teach people stuff, you're gonna like pigeonhole them into not figuring it out for themselves. And that's really where I've gone. That doesn't mean that all of the information that I've studied my whole life is irrelevant. It's more about how do you get there? And there's a difference between time to just play and learn and there's a difference between time to create structure to try to win. When we're playing street lacrosse with boys and girls in front of my house or on the tennis courts, wherever, that's our time to just play. If you want to learn, go watch the film. And every coach knows this film is the most powerful thing you can learn from because you actually find out what happened and why. And, but maybe implicit play is even more powerful because there's things that people do that they never even thought of. They never knew they knew how to do they, You may be like, what did you do on that? And they'll say, I don't know. I just, I just did that. (laughs) And think back to yourself, like growing up, like you'll do things and you'll be like, wow, I can't believe I just did that. I've never done that before. That happens. That's natural. And you can, in the unlock is free play because it unlocks everybody from the structure of everything they've been taught to do. And so then the question is, how do you mold the two together? And the answer is that's, that's, you know, that's the ongoing, Yes, and the power of your platform. So one
1: question that I like to ask on the show is you've played a lot of games. You've coached a lot of games between all the wins and the losses. What did you gain more from the wins or the losses?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think certainly you always learn from failures. And I think that that's one of the, one of the things that I've learned a lot about a coach and it's changed my whole, my whole mentality, meaning, the losses are not a bad thing. They suck at the time, but they, they do teach you stuff and you, they're, they're a part of the process. And that's why as a coach, I used to believe my job was to correct stuff and fix things and get it right and make it work instead of letting it be wrong, letting it be messy and let people figure it out for themselves. Instead of giving them the solutions, give them the problems and let them find the solutions. So I think in, in always it's as just as important part of the process is to fail. Obviously when you're coaching and you're, you know, you're, you're going to uh, be hired and fired based on your wins, you better get some wins. But I think that that's still, you know, that's still just a part of the process that fits perfectly.
1: So if you're, if you're listening to this show and you're thinking about all the hard work that Jamie's put in the last 30 years of kids that he's mentored and the programs that he started, we kind of always go back to the same thing, which is if this makes you think about your coach growing up or a coach that you're fond of pick up the phone and call your coach. Yeah, it's true. Because coaches want to hear from their players regardless of how long it's been. There's a never ending connection between coach and athlete. Jamie, thanks so much. Um, visit Jamie's website. I'm just going to click on the uh, tab here, jm3sports.com. It's filled with tons of resources and obviously you're gonna get 30 years of knowledge, 30 plus years of knowledge, but not only that, if you look at the list of people who have supplied content, this is the who's who's of of lacrosse, and it's a testimony to Jamie's uh, enduring ability to build network and build relationships and people giving back to a guy who's obviously given an enormous amount to the game. So Jamie, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's just awesome connecting with you. Yeah, man. Say hi to your brother and, and stay in touch.
0: Thanks, Gary. It was a pleasure. Uh, Love to do it another time with you.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely get you back on and and stay in touch with JM3. Awesome. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, pal. Take care.
0: Thanks. You've been listening to On The Whistle. For more, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit us at onthewistle.com.